Brilliant. All right, cool. Well, I'll, I will introduce us, see if I can get through it, and then we'll uh, we'll dive straight in. All right. <clears throat> Let's maximize this. Right, well, welcome back to Climate Tech Stories and the Average Joe. It's a podcast where we get to know a little bit more about the stories and people behind businesses that are making a positive impact on the planet. I'm Joe, and I'm super excited to be joined by Johnny Wake, the managing partner at Cortine Hall Estate. Johnny was a fully qualified GP, and since 2013, he's pretty much grown the uh, business in every direction. Just to give you an example of the diversity now of a rural estate farm, Cortine Hall is involved in regenerative agriculture, commercial letting, uh, there's angel investing, there's local community partnerships, event businesses, um, and many more. So probably best to just welcome Johnny. And first of all, have I missed anything off that list that you'd like to add that, <laughs> that you're involved with at the moment? Only if you're going to get married, Joe. We do weddings and events, uh, which we're very, very happy to host you. And a bit, a bit of a renewable energy, which I'm sure we'll end up um, talking about. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that just about covers it. I didn't know you were calling this the average Joe. I see what you did there. That's really clever. Well, yeah, I'm not going to take any credit for that. It's pretty much exemplifies why I'm the average Joe. I've got a great team, great team behind me. Um, and actually, on your renewable portfolio, I mean, I have to look down for this, but it's two solar thermal arrays, two wind turbines, nine rooftop pvs 15 ground source heat pumps is there is there anything i've missed 16 ground source heat pumps um and okay. some i've got four air source heat pumps as well wow i mean that is amazing and look i'd love to get into that detail but i think just to zoom back out for for the audience as well could you just give us a little bit of uh, the history of uh Cortine hall and and like i guess the role that you're playing now and the mission that you kind of work on day to day Sure. So we're based right on the south side of Northampton, right on the border of Northampton now, which makes me feel old. Um, we're so we're, we're farming on the urban fringe. We're first and foremost an agricultural business, but we're very diversified, as you've heard already. We're, we're doing quite a few different things. We, my family, have farmed here for three hundred and fifty-one years, so we've been here for a long, old time, and that clearly informs the way that we look at the world and the way we look at our business. So we talk about sustainability like an awful lot of other people, a lot of other businesses and a lot of other farms do. But sustainability for us is not an end in itself. And you have to know why you're going to be sustainable. And for us, we've got a mission statement that's leaving a legacy to be proud of. And that word legacy is is our reason to bother being sustainable. We really want to leave something behind uh, that 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 we can show off about. And I say that anyone who has anything to do with court and all, I want them to be able to imagine taking their grandchildren of now or the future around the place and saying yeah I was part of that and uh, so that that informs everything that we do that's amazing and you mentioned sustainability as a kind of a value but in specifically like the sustainability we talk about today perhaps environmental sustainability is this something that has always been an emphasis and sort of handed down or is this a more recent push for the estate to, to really look at things like your biodiversity regenerative agriculture and investment into renewables I, th I think it's both, um, because clearly, if if you if you have a long term view as, as any family farm of any size or type will do, then you feel a responsibility to those who came before you and those who came after you. And so, those who came before me were clearly thinking in a long term way in terms of uh, looking after the land. 
but inevitably we've 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 changed things we've got new views we've got new um new dynamism i hope in, in terms of how we're addressing that uh, environmental sustainability is is just one of the three types of sustainability that we focus on this financial sustainability as well because if we can't make 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 the bottom line work then clearly we'll cease to exist and the third one is community sustainability and we, we feel it's really really important that we actually have a part within the local community and we're not some kind of island otherwise we sort of cease to exist on a, on a in a different way as well amazing i think it would be great to come back to the the community side of things but focusing on you to take over that legacy and to make decisions that would impact that what kind of pressure did that put on you what was the transition like when you moved from being the fully qualified gp to sort of now day to day managing the actual estate itself well, fairly messy um that that th- that was never the plan um i wanted to be a doctor i was going to be a full, well at least four days a week doctor and someone was going to manage the business that's how my dad had, had done it um and unfortunately when i took over we didn't really have a full manager in place and i ended up getting dragged more and more into the business through necessity but also it got more and more under my skin i ended up doing less and less doctoring slowly over a period of years to the point where i was actually doing very little and i had a year of doing no doctoring before i had to hand in my license which is a bit of a painful thing to do um i always get asked do i miss it and my answer is always i miss being fully qualified in what i do rather than making it up as i go along uh but i still really enjoy what i do now uh, i don't have any regrets it feels like a waste of training but there are an awful lot of overlaps that people don't tend to see uh, the biggest one being people it's still all about people and you made the decision then that it it would come down to you having to be the one that steps in to to run that than finding someone else that could run the business in that kind of managing role yeah so um so before i took over um my dad and our, our old manager had a drive to try and recruit a, a new manager and, and, and we they didn't really uh, manage to find anyone to do that. We're, we're, we're an annoying kind of size, we're a middle, middle size kind of place and so it, it's difficult to, the market's pretty small, it's difficult to find someone is the, is the short version of that. So I, I ended up getting sucked in. There, there are definitely ways that if I, if I was to go back to doctoring that I could manage this out but of course it's it's a bit like your business, I guess. It's your baby. And giving your child to someone else is a very, very difficult thing to do, especially now it's, it's I've, I've had, what, about nine years of running it myself. Amazing. I think, yeah, I can understand to a degree. But what I just can't get my head around is the pressure of being like a CEO, founder for something that's so new is that, you know, in a way, the sunk cost fallacy doesn't exist where you're like, I can take risks. You know, I can take risks here because what have I got to lose? And I've worked on it for a year. I don't know. And I'm so interested to see when you've made decisions around projects that you've decided to invest in or bring into the the, the farm and estate. When you've got hundreds of years of history attached to that, especially when you talk about things like financial sustainability and making sure that it can still be around for hundreds of years to come. I'm just so interested to understand what the decision-making process must be like for you and how you consider what to do and when to do it. Um, it must be somewhat different to me setting up a business. This is a tech startup. Yeah. It probably boils down to one sort of word, which is long-termism. Not just because we've been here for a long time and not just because we plan to be here for another 350-odd years, but everything, every decision that we make is through a really long-term lens. So it's probably through, you know, on average, roughly a hundred year lens. Imagine 
planting a tree, for example, is going to be somewhere between 80 and 400 years in terms of a, a project. And tree planting is a, is a very good analogy of the kind of activities that, that, that we're doing. So it's just a really, really long term lens with your decisions. In some ways, that's really frustrating because it's like turning an oil tanker on a mega scale. Uh, on others, it's really satisfying because you make decisions that, that, that are the right decisions because they're long term decisions. And is that a decision that's sort of made by you, by yourself, or is it a, a team that really helps you? How do you get the expertise that you need to help inform the type of projects that you bring in and the type of businesses that you set up within within the estate? So our, our main business structure is a partnership, which I know is slightly unusual these days, but it's quite common in the agricultural world. Mm. Um and we have an executive team who are very, very involved and in helping make the, both the day-to-day and the strategic decisions. And because we're a partnership, we don't actually have a, an official board, but we have an unofficial board who are there to advise us both on strategic and, and specific issues where they have expertise. And that kind of combination seems to work really well for us. It's taken us a while to, to get the hang of it, but there's a, there's a freedom involved in being a partnership and not a limited company, but we've ended up actually kind of mimicking a lot of the structure that you'd see in a classic company. And it seems like you're involved, you know, you've, I think you've taken Cortine Hall into a countryside steward, stewardship scheme. Um, you're involved or chair of other sort of um, groups. Um, obviously, there's a lot of partnerships in place. In a way, is there like cross-pollination um, in terms of like ideas and, and validation and learning from other either estates or farms that you're uh, connected to? Yeah, definitely. And I think as an industry, the agriculture industry is really rubbish at, at cross-pollination. It's very much sort of you, you pull the drawbridge up and you, you think of your neighbour as your competitor, which of course is absolute rubbish. We're all, we're all competing on a world market. And we are getting a lot better now, finally, at, um, at, at sharing. But I found it really shocking coming into the industry from a different industry where collaboration was the order of the day, mm. how unnaturally it comes to farmers in, in, in this country. Whereas if you go across to the continent, for example, farms tend to be much smaller and they actually they had to cooperate. It's in the culture already. They share grain storage and all that kind of thing. So it's a very, very different atmosphere. But we're getting a lot better. And certainly for me, as someone who came to the industry late, didn't have any training in it, learning from others is, is absolutely key. And there's loads of different sources for that i was about to ask what was like the biggest change from moving from gp and gp four days a week to running and building a, a business or continuing to run <laughs> and build an existing business uh there were so many um i had no business training i had no agricultural training i was grossly underqualified to do it uh, I suppose if I wanted to try and pick out one big change, it's, it's the change of mindset. When you're uh, a doctor, your sole mission is to try and help people as far as you reasonably can. And mm. so you always just just about always feel like you're on their side. It was definitely a change of mindset when you go into, say, business negotiations of trying to think, well, actually, I'm, I'm not trying to just help this person. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hopefully trying to find a way of sim- being symbiotic with them. But potentially, actually, it's not. It may, may be a zero-sum game. So that's been a certain learning curve for me. Interesting. I think, uh, I, I, you know, to a degree, I see it in the startup culture as well. I think a lot of uh, startups and founders, and I'm, I've been fully victim to this and, and still am, uh, but see every other startup in their space as a competitor. Mm. And and actually, in a lot of cases, you're 0.01% and they're 0.01% 
and actually you're competing against a completely different form of competition which in your case it sounds like is the wider market it's very similar but there's still such a lack of sometimes collaboration between those founders so i find we get a lot of learning from founders of other companies and other industries which is great but mm. there is definitely a missing piece of that puzzle as well in that uh startup landscape um which i hadn't really thought about until until you mentioned it well i, th- I think that's really hard isn't it because in, in my world clearly there are um there are lobbying groups, representative groups for us, which we can lean on to give expertise and to, and to coordinate that collaboration. For startups, you kind of got the UK BAA, haven't you? But um, there's there's not an easy and obvious way to pull them all together because by their very nature, they're, they're scattered and, and and loose and not very registered and established. Yeah, and, and when you then look in the space, but especially we operate in energy, the lobbying and the power of incumbents is just enormous. Mm. And so unless there is a better way of collaborating, it's also possible to to get your voice heard or or to to make change in the more traditional ways other than just being disruptive. But um, yeah, I, I, I wonder from your standpoint, is there an area where you've got most inspiration from for the decisions you've made um, uh, with the estate? Is there another business, a source of inspiration, learning that, you know, you've come back to time and time again? If I, there are lots, but if I could pick one out, it's probably it's probably two of the courses that I've done, um, which have been game changers. And I think probably the probably the best piece of advice I ever had was to stop just trying to make the business work and actually force yourself to take a step back and and, and go on a training course to get that perspective and that outside expertise. And that the perspective that gave me was absolutely immense, and also the network. And certainly learning that networking, I mean, I hate the cheesy phrase networking, but 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 building up contacts who have expertise both within and without of my industry has just been immense. And I've come across so many really generous people with their time and their expertise who I owe a heck of a lot to. Where do you find you're spending most of your time on today when you think about all the different businesses mm-hmm. um, and the running and the operations of the day-to-day of a managing partner? Like, What is your day-to-day looking like on average? Well, it's funny, I have tried to map that and it's difficult because every day really, truly is different. And I guess a lot of people say that, but it, it, the variety is enormous. And I love that. I'm definitely a kind of jack of all trades, master of none kind of person. So that suits me, though it is sometimes quite challenging to manage. Um, but it's very, very variable. Uh, sometimes I can be getting my hands dirty on the farm, though the guys would laugh at me saying that because in comparison to them, obviously, it's very, it's very little. Uh, my hands are pretty soft uh, and other times I'll be in some very, very random meetings um, to do with charities that we're helping or to do with something completely off the wall. And generally our approach has been a kind of scattergun approach to diversification. It, we'll, we'll, we'll look at 20 different things just to be able to pursue one that actually looks like it's going to work in the end so that you go down some really wild rabbit holes by doing that. Is that something, you know, is there an element of that test and learn you're comfortable doing as in you trial lots of things, it's okay to fail and before you pick the one that you're going to sort of fully double down on, is that something that works well, I guess, when you're slightly less constrained in terms of potentially like shareholders and boards and um, decision-making processes? Yeah, well, we, we have immense freedom to pursue them, which, which which is great. But there is also a danger that you end up putting a lot of time and resource into that rather than just focusing on doing the things you do well. 
And, and we have certainly been guilty, ultimately guilty of spreading the business thin by trying to do too many things rather than, than that focus. And also there's a real danger of FOMO. I, I think probably the reason I started out with that tactic of of, of trying 20 different things just to, to get one working was because I was terrified that I might miss an opportunity for the business to, to, to grow somewhere. And sometimes you just need to be satisfied and, and just focus on the day stuff. I will ask about a good experience, but the audience knows, especially the other founders out there, know uh, about failure and learning from that. Is there an example of sort of a failure you've gone through um, since sort of inheriting and, and taking over this role? And was there any learnings that came out of it? Oh, God, there's there's been loads of day-to-day uh, failures and strategic failures as well. I guess with just about any business, and certainly with my business, everything comes down to people. And I... As a GP with a background GP, you you think you're incredibly well trained in communication because it's absolutely key part of your training. It's, it's hammered home so much, uh, so often, and yet I found okay, I was very good at some types of communication, but I really wasn't good at others, mm. and I was probably really slow to realise that. And that meant that I wasn't getting the best out of some of the people on our team. And I don't know if I've I think I've improved. Have I got? to the, the final destination yet probably not because you probably never get there but yeah i had some spectacular failures trying to work with people some of whom were probably the wrong fit and i hung on to them for way too long when we all should have just said uh, we need to um, say thanks shake hands and, and walk away and other times actually really not tapping into people and and, and helping them get the best out of themselves again it's, i guess it's a little interesting with such a diverse portfolio of, of businesses um, that also means then it's quite a diverse group of people. And like, how do you think about performance, right? Because we even struggled when, when we look at, you know, the mm. difference between an engineering team, a marketing <clears throat> team and the commercial team. We have one single North Star and we've got one focus, right? A platform that allows businesses to buy their energy more directly from renewable generators. Mm. With you, how how do you focus those teams towards a common goal and also how do you manage performance and manage the right people for the right jobs uh, it's, it's it's really hard and kpis are very challenging across i mean most of parts of our business you can't really set kpis mm. you you can set um objectives but it's quite hard to smart them uh it's very hard to give people performance related bonuses in most of the parts of our business mm. some of the people in the team quite a few people in the team will wear more than one hat as well so that they're, they're effectively doing two or three jobs um which are which, which are relatively separate so it, it's really challenging and it's not something we've probably got nailed down but we just continually try and do our best and uh and, and model through with it interesting and i did promise i'll ask also about the the thing that you're really excited about at the moment or a project you're working on that you're really excited about at the moment, what's what's going right for you at the moment? What what thing is, uh, yeah, what thing is getting you up in the morning with a smile on your face? Uh, we've got a few things that are getting me really excited, probably too many, because again, we're probably trying to spread ourselves really thin. I probably put carbon at the top of the list at the moment. Uh, some of your listeners may have heard that, that carbon in agriculture is an area of real interest at the moment. Uh, if the more the more carbon you can store in your soil, the, the healthier your soil is. So we as farmers should always be doing that, and we have been measuring that here in uh, in terms of organic matter for for quite a number of years now. And we've got good levels of organic matter, good levels of carbon, 
but the question is how how can we increase that and how can we also make that work for us beyond just improving our soils so we're doing as many other businesses are we're, we're doing detailed measurements of of our carbon footprint mm. it's there, there are carbon measuring tools out there for soil at the moment but they're incredibly inaccurate and rough and ready so we've now gone with an incredibly detailed um one which is becoming a government accredited uh, it's peer-reviewed by accredited university uh it's really expensive and we're we're working on that to um to give us complete comfort of the whole business and so not just the farm yeah and we believe that that well, we hope that we will actually be sequestering carbon overall when we take everything into account. So long as we can prove that beyond doubt or beyond reasonable doubt, then that will give us the, the chance to actually trade carbon. Uh, and that would be a very exciting way to to, to help monetize what we're doing. And there are other carbon projects that we're working on as well with the help of some other companies um, or represented NGOs actually rather than companies. So for example, we're taking part in the Hedgerow Carbon Code pilot trial there's a carbon code for trees. There isn't one for hedgerows and hedgerows are great carbon sinks, really good for carbon as well as obviously for biodiversity. So we're getting really excited about uh, carbon at the moment. And I'm also thinking that the political climate is now finally changing uh, as regards renewables. We've done probably the majority of what we can do from a solar point of view, but there's definitely potential for us to do more wind if onshore wind gets allowed back mm -hmm. in. And um, we're just working with uh, a partner on um, on an AD anaerobic digestion application for planning at the moment. And AD, I think, has a real part to play in our our, our national energy challenge, should we say? Yeah, Phil, it's all it's awfully underrepresented when it's talked about because you know the problem we have with wind and solar, the cleanest source, but obviously the intermittency. Um, and therefore, we're left pretty much looking at only nuclear and gas as a baseload alternative without coal. Yeah. Coal is very good at what it does. Anaerobic digestion being that sort of consistent baseload production, as well as the kind of circular economy it brings in. Um, it's like a real shame. There was a big, I guess, push for during the fit and rock schemes where, where ADs popped yeah. up. But we really don't see that many anymore compared to solar panels battery sites uh, i don't know if you're seeing that changing or, or why you would see yeah that well th th there is there is a change now because there are two new uh subsidies that come in to encourage it they're nowhere near as generous as the previous ones but the higher price of energy combined with those new ones is now making people look at it again very seriously uh, and if you can find an on-site use uh for for the waste heat and some electricity then that obviously gives you an extra justification for doing it I think the key thing with AD though is whatever you're feeding it has to be a sustainable uh, source. Whatever you want to, you know, there's a whole debate around what what counts as sustainable. Um, but there there have been some problems in the past. I'm sure you're aware with things like maize um, yeah. being grown for it. And my personal feeling is that 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 is probably a problem. Um, you need to make sure what's going in is 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 true waste, or at least a, a, a decent enough proportion of it is. No, absolutely. It's it's interesting hearing you talk about both of these. That impact of thinking with long termism is mm. so helpful here because I think you're probably aware in, in the carbon space, carbon trading, carbon credits, carbon accounting, um measuring the detail and being absolutely sure and being really vertically deep within the company and therefore higher cost is absolutely necessary to make these things worthwhile. Otherwise, obviously, there's a huge sort of risk of greenwashing, which we've seen in other certifications. So it's interesting to see you're taking the long-termism route, which is probably a more expensive one, but 
provides right. a, a long term yeah. this is not a quick buck over the next few years and you're, you're spot on and actually i should have used the greenwashing word because that that is just absolutely key in this whole space anyway and you're right that because we take a long-term view reputational uh, damage to us is is a, is a killer so we, we it can take us <laughs> decades to build up that reputation but a day to lose it so we need to be really really careful about that mm. and just to touch on, you mentioned right at the beginning your community work. Why? What do you see the advantages are for you to be working with the community and partnering with the community? You talked about not creating an island, but talk me through the why and and the how that you actually work with uh, your local community at the moment. So it, I find it hard to put into words, really. But if we if if we don't engage with our local community, I just sort of think the point of what we do disappears, and we we, we have to. We have to be a really focal point for the community. We always have been in the past, and we have to not only avoid losing that, but we have to actually build on it. We've been doing a particular amount of work with schools, and I think that's really important, not only because the cheesy phrase, the children are our future, which they, they clearly are, but also I think um, there's an increasing divide between urban and rural. Mm. And as a farm on the urban fringe, we, we see that, and it really, really worries me. And so we need to do our bit with that. And there's also a well-documented disconnection between people and their food. And we've had kids from urban schools come here and all the cliches, you know, they've never seen uh, any kind of animal that's to do with food before. They can't believe an egg comes out of a chicken's bum. It, it, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing when you actually see these things for real and then you see the buzz that these kids are getting out of it and, and the, the massive change in their mindset at the end. So I think that's why it's really important to us. Yeah, I think that, I think, uh, well, in fact, I'm sure many industries can learn from that. I always find it funny before I even got into energy. I honestly, I'm sure I was taught it at school. Maybe I wasn't just paying attention, but I didn't know when you flick a light switch. I had no understanding of how that light bulb was turning on. I just took it for granted. Mm. And it either takes an energy crisis or education to actually understand the importance of understanding even where your energy comes from how it's produced whether it's local or not the why you want to build certain renewable assets um why you might want to decarbonize there's synergies there in the same way i imagine it's exactly the same for knowing where your produce comes from where your food comes from i'm sure at some point even things like water will become more and more about the origin yeah. as the story as well as the importance of educating around that yeah, your light switch analogy is a really good one. And you're also obviously spot on in terms of the crisis. I think everyone has started to care a lot more about their energy because we've had a sort of crisis mm. with energy. But it's not a, it's not the kind of crisis where there's been a blackout yet. No. And food production is very similar. We've obviously during COVID and more recently, we have had food shortages. Mm. And that's kind of frightening for people, but they're not proper food shortages. When we actually have blackouts or true food shortages, then everyone's going to care a hell of a lot more about how those things are produced for them. Absolutely. Um, right. We're going to do two quick fire questions. So first one is what piece of technology have you been using recently that, you know, you couldn't live without that you've been really enjoying? Other than the Bluetooth headset that you very. Well, it's funny you say that. I'm I'm really sad about my Bluetooth headset. I, I just I, I can't put my phone to my head these days. It's kind of pathetic, um, but it just feels really like a real effort to have to lift my arm up to, to hold the phone there and so when i do my phone calls i'm so lucky where, where i work I, I just walk outside with my dogs um, to walk them whenever i'm making a phone call and uh, i get a very cold hand for six months of the year if i'm not using my bluetooth 
headset. Uh, so I really, I really, really love that piece of tech. And I've got about three of them because I keep losing them and then refinding them. I think that's a good enough answer. Um, and do you have a song or a podcast on repeat at the moment that you're enjoying? Oh, podcasts. I'm so a huge podcast fan. I, I don't want to single out one, but uh, I really enjoy um, uh, The Rest is History, The Rest is Politics and Rugby Union Weekly are probably my three three top ones. Well, there you go. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Johnny, for joining us. Um, just to let people know, I did check. I'm not pushing this, but I did see you can buy a book on the history of Courtney Hall Farm from on your on your website. But you know, is there any other way that people can reach out to you if they want to find out more about Courtney Hall yourself um, and and the future plans? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we uh, we're on all the social media channels uh, that you'd expect, and there's the website as well. So yeah, give us a shout. It'd be lovely to hear from anybody. Amazing. Yeah, our marketing team have already said that, you know, your social is a, is a very good beacon for us even to follow. So, uh, yeah, do check out Cortine Hall Farm Socials there. They're, they're fantastic. Um, amazing. Well, thank you for joining us and we'll speak again soon, hopefully. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Bye. All right. I can stop the recording. That was great. Thanks, Johnny. Good.